pleasure to be here. I really appreciate your pastor and his wife. I can boast today, I knew Lori before he did. I knew Lori when she was about seven or eight years old. We go way back with her mom and dad. And Pastor Joe, he was one of my students. Isn't he a great guy? I love Joe. I love your pastor. Got a great pastor here who has a real vision. I'll tell you what, this guy really loves you guys. If he didn't, I'll tell you what, there would be no thought about any kind of a counseling ministry because you know what, that's your problem, not his. But he assumes the role of being your pastor to do all that he can to try to help you. And so he's got a pastor's heart. You know, not every pastor has a pastor's heart. And so rejoice, pray for your pastor and his wife, his family, and rejoice in the Lord that you have such a good one. Well, listen, would you stand this morning? I have a few verses I want to read. Then I'm going to share with you some lessons that I've learned in my journey. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I just want you to turn, if you have your Bibles, you have your apps on your cell phone, Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Probably my favorite book in the Bible is the book of Philippians because it's such a powerful book. It's a book of the love that a leader had for the people that he helped to establish in the faith, the Apostle Paul. In the Philippians, if you read anything about them, they were just a generous group of people, and they demonstrated that generosity by the way that they gave. It's very difficult to say that you love someone and not give, but the Philippians were those kind of people. They loved and they demonstrated that love to others by their generosity. But Philippians chapter 1 Beginning with verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it is such an awesome responsibility and an awesome blessing to bring forth your word. I pray this morning that your anointing will rest upon the ministry of your word, that that word would go out and not come back void, that through the power of your spirit that you will transform each and every one of us in a way, Lord, that we need to be transformed today. May your son and your son alone be exalted and honored and glorified here this day. In all these things we pray together in Jesus' name, amen. You know, as I said, I wanted to share some lessons that I've learned along my life's journey. I was saved back in 1972, so I've been at this for a little bit of time. When I began to think about what lessons could I share with the folks at Lighthouse Assembly, man, there's so much I could have talked about. But I prayed and I said, Lord, where do you want me to go with this thing? Where do you want me to focus? And so I kind of felt that there were three lessons, primary lessons that God wanted me to share with you today. And by the way, these may not even be the most important lessons that I've learned. They're just the lessons I feel God wants me to talk to you about. And here's the first lesson that I learned in my life journey. Grace wins over legalism. Grace wins over legalism. As I look at the church in general today around the world, and in particular here in America, I'm convinced that the church needs to rediscover the power of God's grace. The power of God's grace as it relates to sinners, as it relates to other saints, 
and ultimately as the grace of God relates to ourselves. I don't believe the church is going to track people outside of the church by an overemphasis on legalism. I really think today that this is never so more important than when we deal with the issue of homosexuality. There are people outside the church who are engaged in homosexual behavior that when they look at the church of Jesus Christ today, believe in their heart of hearts that we not only hate their sin, but we hate them. Listen, there's no debate today within the evangelical church that homosexual behavior is sinful. We understand the consequences of homosexual behavior. The Bible talks about it, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul came out with a blanket statement, and he said that anyone who practices homosexual behavior will not inherit the kingdom of God. We know that, right? It's not debatable. But we don't often understand that Paul didn't just talk about homosexuality in that passage. He also went on to say that those who are sexually immoral, those who are idolaters, those who are thieves, those who are greedy, those who are drunkards, those who are slanderers and swindlers, they're not going to get there either. But somehow in the church today, we tend to elevate this sin above all the other sins, and we send the message to those outside the church that if you're engaged in this behavior, we not only hate your behavior, we hate you as a person. There's a church down south. It's a Baptist church. They go around when soldiers come home. Perhaps you've seen it in the news. They go to funerals of soldiers that have returned from Iraq or Afghanistan in a body bag. And they go to the graveside and the funeral of those grieving parents, those grieving loved ones of their fallen loved one. And they have these signs that they carry around outside the cemetery. And one of the signs says, God hates fags. You're not going to win people by being legalistic. You can hate the sin, but God wants you and I to love the sinner. Do you remember the criminal who was crucified next to Christ? Society's answer to his crime was swift and severe punishment, and rightly so. The man deserved to die that day. However, the only effect that society's hatred toward him had was to further harden his heart. It wasn't until he was touched by the grace of God that that criminal on the cross next to Jesus was finally set free. Sensing the love of Christ, he spoke these words, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To which Jesus said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Through the power of God's grace, one of society's worst sinners became a child of God. His name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I want to tell you, back in 1972, this sinner, through the grace of God, has had his name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Aren't you glad for the grace of God that reached out to you when you were in opposition against God, when you were doing everything that God didn't want you to do, and out of his grace, he lifted you up and he planted your feet on solid foundation. And here you are today, your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, not because of the good things you've done, 
Not because you're worthy to get what God gives you. He gives it to us through the power of grace. Something that we get that we don't deserve. The grace of God. When I worked at Emerge Ministry, I had a chance to counsel a man who was working in the prison ministry in New York City. And I'll never forget, we began talking about his ministry in New York City, going into the prison, witnessing the people, sharing his faith. And somewhere along the line, he mentioned to me that he knew David Berkowitz. He had met him in prison. In fact, he began a friendship with him. I don't know how many of you remember David Berkowitz. Anybody here? How about the son of Sam? Does that ring a bell? Back in 1978, David Berkowitz with a 44 revolver went around to different areas where young people would gather, and he killed, at least he was uh, convicted of killing six people. Years later now, David Berkowitz is in jail, and I heard this rumor that David Berkowitz had accepted the Lord. And I said to this man that went in the prison system, I said, did David Berkowitz really accept the Lord? Is he really a Christian? And he said to me, I want to tell you something. I met a lot of people in my life, but I don't know of too many that are more sincere, more in love with Jesus than David Berkowitz, a man convicted of killing other people. Now has his name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the grace of God. In fact, I decided yesterday I was going to Look, I want to make sure that, did this guy get the story straight? Did David Berkowitz really accept Christ? And I went on the internet and I found an interview that David Berkowitz did with Scott Ross from CBN. And here's what David Berkowitz said in his response to a question that Scott Ross gave him. So I know I'm living for Jesus. And no matter what man may say, I belong to him. I've been purchased by Jesus Christ with his blood. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We will win far more people with grace than legalism. Secondly, we need to rediscover grace as it relates to other believers, not just a sinner, but to the saint. One of the great books I've had a chance to read over the years is a book called The Wisdom of Each Other by Eugene Peterson. And it's a great book where he talks about some of the struggles that we face as we interact with believers in the church. And in that particular book, Peterson talks about his own personal struggle with hypocrites. Now, I know you folks can't relate to that because there are no hypocrites at Lighthouse Assembly. Amen? Just a lot of pride, right? Amen. And this is what Peterson said. He said, I went to church and I started applying the, what he called the 1 John 4, 8 test. To spiritual people. You know what 1 John 4, 8 says? Whoever does not love God does not know God. So here's old Peterson taking that passage and looking at people in the church and seeing if they measure up to God's standard. And here's what Peterson later confessed. It was surprising how many rated at best a C-. But grading the condition of people's souls is a risky business. It doesn't take much imagination to realize how quickly you could lose your own soul in the process, so I stop grading. Wouldn't it be great if we had churches that stopped grading each other? Peterson also went on to say in that same book, and listen to these words of wisdom. 
He said the church is not a natural community composed of people with similar interests. Wouldn't it be wonderful if it was? Everybody in church liked to go to the same restaurant, eat the same food, listen to the same songs, liked the same color of the walls on the building, the same carpet. We all had the same vision. But Peterson says it's not a natural community composed of people with the same common interests. It's a supernatural community. And the super in that word doesn't mean it exceeds your expectations, but it's other than your expectations. And much of the other is invisible to you and I. That's good stuff. This is a supernatural community. And it doesn't mean at times it exceeds my expectations. It's other than my expectations because this is God's work, not mine. And he's doing something in our hearts that we don't often understand nor see. I pastored for almost 20 years. You know what some people would say to me? I'm leaving the church. And I said, why are you leaving the church? Too many hypocrites. And I said, listen, one more won't hurt thing. You know, I believe it was F.B. Meyer in his wisdom who said that when we see a brother sin, there's two things that we don't know. First of all, we don't know how hard that brother tried to resist that temptation. And secondly, we don't know the power of the forces that assailed him. We also don't know what we would have done if we were in the same situation. It was John Bradford in the 16th century who saw a group of men that were being led to be executed. And he turned to his friend who was with him at that time, and he looked at those criminals who were soon to die, and he said to his friend, but for the grace of God, there go I. And I want to tell you today, my friend, there's a lot of people who are going through a hard time, and I don't know how I would handle their situation if I was in their shoes. But for the grace of God, there go I. Charlie Manson. Y'all remember Charlie Manson a few years ago at the Tate murders? I never forget Charlie. He's still alive. He's in prison. And he incited some of his followers to go to a home and kill some people. But what's sad about Charles Manson is that Charles Manson's mother was a prostitute. And he grew up on the city streets. He never knew his father. And I'm not trying to justify what Charlie Manson did with his life. It's appalling. But what I'm saying to you, I don't know what would have happened to me if I was in Charlie Manson's shoes, if my mother was a prostitute, if I never knew my father, and I had to fight for everything in life that I ever had. But for the grace of God, there go I. We need to rediscover the grace of God as it relates to sinners, as it relates to saints but also as it relates to ourselves. You know, for some Christians, the most difficult person to be gracious to is themselves. Somewhere along the line, we haven't learned the simple truth that God doesn't love me more when I do it right or less when I do it wrong. He loves me the same. I'm not saying that I don't have the ability to break God's heart when I do it wrong. I sure do. But I'm saying to you, when I break God's heart, he doesn't say, well, I'm going to turn off the well of my love in your life because you know what? You don't deserve it. No, the grace of God is constant in all of our lives. 
Many years ago, the British Navy was involved in peacetime maneuvers at sea. The ships were steaming along in formation when a single was given to execute a 90-degree turn. However, the maneuver nearly ended in a catastrophe when the ship's captain missed a single and nearly collided with another cruiser. When the admiral of the flagship heard of the incident, he sent a telegram to the guilty captain. Captain, what are your intentions? Immediately, the reply came back, Sir, I plan to buy a farm. The captain knew that his mistake had cost him his career. I'm here today to tell you, my friend, that failure in your life doesn't mean that you have to buy the farm. We serve a God of the second chance. Romans 5.20 says it this way, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. If the truth be known, every single one of us on a daily basis falls short of God's ideal. Failure is a reality of life, even among the most mature saints who have ever walked the face of this earth. Now, I think back a few years ago when I read the story of William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army. All of us are familiar with Salvation Army. Many of the people looked at William Booth and felt that he was indestructible in his faith. But William Booth goes on to tell a story that at one point in his ministry, he writes a letter to his wife, Catherine, and says, Catherine, I'm tired of the ministry. I'm getting out. He was ready to quit. Then I think of Charles Spurgeon, who is known in history as the Prince of Preachers. In his lifetime, he is estimated to have preached to over 10 million people. In 1865, over 25,000 copies of his sermons were sold every single week. 1865, 25,000 copies of anything is a miracle, let alone a sermon. Later on, after he died, all of his messages were published, and it became the largest set of books by a single author in the history of Christianity. That was Charles Spurgeon. Yet in spite of all the success that he had in his life, Spurgeon suffered with severe bouts of depression. And in one of his sermons, he talked about his mood when he wrote these words, My spirit was so low that I wept by the hour like a child. The great Charles Spurgeon. Then I think of Elijah. After that tremendous victory over the prophets of Baal, he goes down under a broom tree and he sits there and he says, Lord, I've had enough. I want to die. Sometimes the greatest of us are weak. Sometimes we don't always live up to the expectations that we have for ourselves. How do you treat yourself when you don't live up to your expectations? Do you take out a bat and begin to beat yourself and beat yourself? Or are you learning to be gracious to yourself? Because grace wins. Legalism kills. And I'm convinced that in the church we need to learn to be gracious to those outside of the church, those who are in the church, and we need to be gracious to ourselves. Failure is a reality of life. Don't allow these instances to result in self-condemnation. Choose to be gracious to yourself. The penalty for your sin 
has already been paid. Lesson number one, grace wins. Lesson number two, we win. Isn't that great? We're going to win if we are persistent. That's a big if. We win if we're persistent. Becoming a Christian is easy. Say after me, I accept Jesus in my raise your hand. Okay, right. that's easy. Becoming Christ-like is a never-ending challenge. That's what I tell my pastoral ministry students at school. The easy job is to get people in the church. The hard part is to keep them there and keep them growing in Christ-likeness. See, the gospel that you and I love really has good news and bad news. Now, you probably never heard that the gospel has bad news, but here's what I mean. The good news is that when we become a Christian, we are connected with the power that is able to transform all of our weaknesses. We have a power that enables us to grow in Christ-likeness, but the bad news is it's not easy. Hence, the reason why some people never change. They've been saved for 150 years, but they're still as grumpy as ever. Don't sit in their seats. Oh, you better not. I had one guy in my church. In fact, the place that he sat in the pew actually took the paint, the varnish off the pew. I'm being honest. And I'll never forget one time we had some visitors come in, and they accidentally sat in that seat, and he walked over them and said, that's my seat. Listen, you can be saved for 150 years and still be the same person you were 150 years ago because transformational changes are often difficult and painful. You see, becoming like Christ requires persistence, persistence in learning to forgive and learning to be ethical. It takes persistence in learning to be kind, to be truthful, to be holy, to be humble, to be morally upright. And how about this one? Doesn't it take persistence in learning to become patient? I haven't conquered that one yet. If you don't believe me, ride with me sometime on the turnpike. I travel about 500 miles a week, and I want to tell you something. There's some real knotheads out there. I mean, some genuine, full-blooded knotheads. And sometimes I'm not always patient with them. The good news is, is that I seek to become like Christ. I understand that it's not a solo venture. It's not just something I'm doing all by myself. I'm reminded of what Paul says in the book of Philippians. For it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good purpose. The good news is we're in a partnership with God as you and I walk with him to become more Christ-like. And I'm here to say today, we win if we press forward in our pursuit to be Christ-like. And here's the other one. Secondly, we win if we're persistent in the face of life's disappointments. Anybody ever been disappointed in life? How many in the last hour and a half? I mean, it just it happens all the time. You see, we come into the church, as I say, easy to get saved. You come into church, you got a great pastor who tells you about the promises of God. Tells you about eternal life. Tells you about the other side of eternity where death and tears and sorrow be wiped away. No more funeral homes, no more hospitals. And, and all of a sudden we start thinking, well, can I experience all of it here right now? 
And next thing you know, life hits you. You lose your job. The marriage doesn't work out. The kids rebel. The prognosis from the doctor is not good. Your boyfriend walks out the door. Your girlfriend gets someone else. And the list goes on and on and on. I learned a long time ago that life is always a disappointment at some level this side of eternity. Let me give you, for instance, right now, how many of you are enjoying this great winter? What winter we didn't have? Aren't you? I mean, just 80 degrees the other day. I'm thinking, wow. Didn't have to. I think I only used my snowblower one time, and that was one time too many. Uh, it, but it's just, here comes the bugs. You know, I, we're going to be able to put saddles on the bugs and ride them because they're going to get so healthy in this weather because they weren't. So you know, on one hand, rejoicing over this wonderful summer weather that we've been having in December. And, but now the bugs are just going to kill us. And how about the other day? I'm lying around, my window's down. I got off the turnpike, and I started on the back roads, and the sun is shining, every, and all of a sudden, something hit my nose. You know what I'm talking about? And all of a sudden, beautiful day in the countryside, but oh, there it is, the odor. Life is always disappointing in one fashion or another, this side of eternity. Go away on a vacation, get that hotel room that you've been saving up all your money on, and you get there, and all of a sudden, somebody above you is having a party, and you can't get to sleep that night. Life is always disappointing, this side of eternity. Charlie Brown and... Linus are standing looking over a fence with their tired faces resting on their hands. They're filled with sadness. Linus presently says to Charlie Brown, sometimes I feel that life has just passed me by. Do you ever feel that way, Charlie Brown? In his normal melancholy mood, Charlie replies, no, I feel like it knocked me down and walked all over me. Listen, folks, there's going to be some challenges that we face this side of eternity. And it's not a reflection of how much you love Jesus. You can love Jesus with all of your heart and still get cancer. You can love Jesus with all of your heart and still end up in a marriage that really doesn't work. You can love Jesus with all your heart and train your kids in the way that they should go. And when they get old enough, they're not heads. They don't go the right way. It happens. I remember dealing with a young couple in my church just got saved. Just a young couple. Dad had already been in the church. He was a police officer. Ended up talking to his son about the Lord. And his son started attending the church with his wife, and they just had a wonderful baby. I mean, they were just so, such a celebration. And they decided to go visit one of their friends to show them the baby. And when they got to the house, they decided, it's getting kind of late, why don't we just stay here and just spend the night with our friends, and friends said, fine. But the only problem is they didn't have a crib for the baby. So the parents said, don't worry about it. We'll just put the baby in the bed with us. But when they woke up that morning, the baby was dead. Sometimes, you know, as much as you love the Lord, as good a servant as you are of the Lord, those bumps in the road happen. And when they happen, we have to be persistent. and say, Lord... I'm not giving up. I'm not giving in to despair. I'm not quitting, Lord. 
because I know he who endures into the end is the one who's saved, not he who gets almost there and quits. So I want to encourage you today. I don't know what you're going through, but I'm here to tell you, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't quit. Be persistent in the face of the disappointments that come your way because there is a crown of life that's waiting for you and I on the other side. We may lose a few battles, my friends, but the outcome of this war has already been determined. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, Paul said, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. When life gets you down, remember, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. But what is seen is temporary, but what is not seen is eternal. My friends, we win. We win if we refuse to give up. In lesson number three, truth wins. You know, you and I are living in what we call, what the experts call a postmodern world. Now, what do I mean by a postmodern world? I mean, we're living in a day and age when everybody's view of truth and reality is just as good as everybody else's. Therefore, I don't have any right to go to you and say, you know what, what you believe isn't really true because it doesn't match up with what I believe. Postmodern people believe that everybody has an opinion and their opinion is truth. And boy, we're seeing it today, are we not? Just this whole issue of political correctness. There is no right and wrong. Everybody's truth is right, as right as mine. I had an interesting conversation with a family member just recently about the issue of homosexuality. And this family member at one time was a Royal Ranger leader used to lead worship in the church. Years later now, he and I are sitting down talking about the issue of homosexuality. We're talking about a variety of things. That happened to be one that came up. But now he's challenging me. You believe what you believe, but how do you know what you believe is true? It's just your truth. It's not my truth. And I'm telling you, that's the world that we live in. But I'm also here to say there is a right and there is a wrong. There is truth and there is non-truth. I'm going to live my life believing that what I read in God's word is true. I'm going to live my life believing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man's going to come to God except by him. I'm going to live my life believing that one day, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he and he alone is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, how has it hurt me? I've lived a good moral life. I've been prompted by what I believe God has told me to be good to people, to forgive, to help. What if I'm wrong? What have I lost? I haven't lost anything because I've lived a good life here on earth. But what about those people who embrace a different belief system? What do they lose if they don't accept Christ? I can't force someone to accept my truth. But I'm going to live my life on the foundation of that truth. So when you meet the people out there in the world that chide you a little bit, call you an extremist because you don't believe that there are many saviors that bring you into the kingdom of God, 
Stand your ground. Stand your ground. Because in the end, truth wins. And Jesus is that truth. So what have I learned along life's journey? Again, I could tell you a lot of things that I felt God leading me to these three. What have I learned? I learned that grace wins. I learned that when we are gracious to those outside of the church, gracious to people in the church, and we're gracious to ourselves, we win. Secondly, I've learned that we win in the end. We win that in the end, when life is over, we will pass from this life into eternity because our names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Grace wins, we win. Then finally, truth wins. Truth wins. It's the only foundation. And I'm going to keep building, and I know you guys are going to do the same. We win. Grace wins. Truth wins. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity today to share those thoughts that you placed upon my heart. I thank you, Lord, for these revelations that you've given to me to help me to understand that grace wins. Grace wins when we're gracious to those outside the church, gracious to those in the church, and when we're gracious to ourselves. We find, Lord, that we win if we learn to be persistent. Persistent in trying to become like Christ. Persistent in working through the frustrations and the disappointments of life. They are inevitable. And to understand finally, Lord, that truth wins. That it's the only foundation that the gates of hell will never be able to prevail against. Thank you for the truth that you brought into all of our lives that enable us to live as children of the living God. Bless this congregation, Father. Bless the leadership team. Use them in a significant way. Lord, if there's anyone in church today that needs a special touch from you, I pray, Lord, touch them right now. Bless them right now, Lord. Encourage their heart right now, Lord. May you be magnified in their lives. In all these things we pray together. In Jesus' name, amen.